Romans chapter 9, I'm not sure what translation you have. I'm, I'll be reading from the uh, New American Standard Version. I've read uh, this chapter in the NASB this week. I've read it in the English Standard Version. I've read it in the Christian Standard Bible. I've read it in the NIV. <clears throat> and um, Mark is going to make it all clear to us tonight, okay? No pressure on Mark. This is a doozy, but let's, if you've got your Bibles, it's Romans chapter 9. And just follow along uh, in your Bible as I read from uh, my translation here. I'm telling you the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever, amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no justice, injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called, not from among, among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people. 
and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly, and just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stum stumbling stone, just as, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion, a, z a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Well, good evening, and uh, glad you're joining with us here tonight at Fellowship Saturday. And uh, those of you online, thanks for... Um, joining us as well and streaming this, um, this time of worship. Um, don't believe everything you read, right? I mean, that certainly is true in this day and age. I mean, that's a statement that uh, has been true throughout history. But in our day and age, with all the um, social media and internet accessibility, you got to be all the more careful, don't you? Uh, what is fake news? What is real news? What is... Uh, you know, what is truth? What is fiction? Um, what, what is accurate? Um, can, can you trust what you read these days? It's a, it's a good question. And um, we're being bombarded with stuff all the time. And so how do we understand that? How do we filter that? But as Christians, we can all affirm that um, we don't have any doubts or any hesitations about um, that there's that there's one book that is absolutely true, and that's the Word of God, right? God's Word. One book that stands uh, true above everything else, it's God's Word. Um, we, we can trust God's Word. Or can we? <laughs> the Apostle Paul had to face that question as he wrote to the Roman church. Um, it was a question forced upon him when he had concluded chapter 8. And if you recall our study in this book of Romans, chapter 8, the last couple of verses said, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Except there's one potential problem with that verse. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. But what about the nation of Israel? See, when Paul was writing this, this was very present on his mind. He's writing to a church that was a mix of Gentiles, predominantly Gentiles, but Jewish writers. And 
seemed like that was the big issue throughout the early church. It was always, you know, the Jews and the Gentiles, and he was always dealing with those type of, of, of uh, ethnic issues within the church. And it was a good question to be raised, well, but if nothing can separate us from the love of God, we've we got a major issue with the nation of Israel. What about Israel? Didn't God make eternal promises that I will always love you, an everlasting love, an eternal love? And yet when they handed over their Messiah, Jesus, to the Romans to be crucified, didn't God say enough's enough? Wasn't that it? Hadn't the Jews now been separated from the love of God because of their rejection of Jesus? You see, if you go back to that verse again, those two verses, the last part of verse 39 says, nothing, I'm convinced, he says that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. And notice the last little phrase, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will separate us from God's love which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And guess what? The Jewish people had nothing to do with Christ Jesus as their Lord. See, the heartbreaking reality for the Apostle Paul was that, I mean, he looked out over his people, over his countrymen. I mean, this guy was a Jew of Jews, trained up to be a Pharisee. These were his people. And then he looked out over the Jewish nation, and it was like, they're not following Jesus. Can anything separate us from the love of God? Well, absolutely not, which is in Christ Jesus the Lord. But the Jewish people were not believing in Christ Jesus, their Messiah or Lord. And so no wonder, Paul says at the beginning there of chapter 9, no wonder he says, I have great sorrow, I have unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my countrymen, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Unceasing sorrow, deep, deep grief. Paul had a passion for his people, and they were hell-bound. They were lost. Now, it wasn't because they didn't have the opportunity to. And so, for a little bit, I want us to go back into the book of Acts, and look at um, some of the sermons that uh, Peter preached uh, to the Jewish people. Acts chapter 2, we'll start there. Acts chapter 2, and this is on the day of Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit had come, and everybody's wondering what's going on here, because the followers of Jesus were filled with the Spirit, and they were speaking in tongues, and it was... Uh, like, what in the world is going on here? And Paul, uh, or Peter has to explain what has just happened. And in verse 22, we'll pick it up with his sermon. Men of Israel, listen to these words now. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you know. I mean, this was only 50 days or so after Jesus' crucifixion? I mean, these people knew, they, they remembered Jesus. It was only a few weeks back. This man, verse 23, was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, and you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, and you put him to death. 
That's what you did, Jewish people. But, verse 24, God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Now jump down to verse 36. His sermon continues and he quotes from the Psalms, and, but jump down to verse 36. This is his conclusion. Therefore, those are wonderful words to hear at the end of a sermon, isn't it? It's just, you can't sometimes wait for, okay, come on, close this up, land the plane. Well, here's Peter landing the plane. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, Messiah, the word for Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Make no doubt about it, says Peter. Understand this, get it, and get it right. God has made Jesus both Lord and Messiah, this one you crucified. A powerful message. In verse 37, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. Um, let's jump over to chapter 3, another account, another story of where um, a man is healed. Peter and John are in the temple, and they heal this man. And we'll pick up uh, what Peter said, well, verse 12, uh, when Peter saw this, he replied, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made this man walk? And now verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it's the name of Jesus, which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. Now jump over to well, verse 17. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers also did. Now verse 18. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Messiah would suffer he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, verse 20, and that he may send Jesus, the Messiah appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. Verse 22, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed the prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Verse 24, and likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days, it is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first, God raised up his servant. He sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Accept him, 
That was Peter's message. Repent, return. God is just waiting to pour out the times of refreshing on you, Jewish people, on Israel. That was the Old Testament prophets. That was the, the prophetic scriptures. So get with the program. Understand that this Jesus that you disowned, that you crucified, he's the righteous one. He's the anointed one. He's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. Believe in him so that we can get on with the program and, and God will send him, resend him back to this earth. And, and of course, what was the implication? And, and he'll return and he'll set up his kingdom. And in Jerusalem and, and the world will be saved. The fulfillment of Abraham. All the nations of the world will be blessed. Now, get with the program. Trust Jesus. I do think there was that intensity with Peter. Just the nature of kind of Peter was. So let's go over to chapter 4. Let's look at another. Some words of Peter again. Now this is after not a great healing took place, but this is after being roughed up a bit by the religious leaders. Verse 8. Peter then, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Messiah, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. And he's the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Another powerful, Christ-focused message from Peter. Now, again, the point of all this the Jewish people had ample opportunity. They had witnessed before their eyes the coming of the Holy Spirit. The change. Aren't these Galileans? Didn't, weren't these guys Galileans? I mean, they're uneducated men. Like, wow, what's happened to them? And they're on a mission. They want the kingdom to come. They want the Messiah to return. But the Jewish people were locked in a mindset of unbelief. They had rejected him. And Peter is saying, we are witness to the fact that he has risen from the dead. Receive him. Trust him. And as we know, the Jews rejected that message time and time again. The Jews rejected their Messiah. And so Paul affirmed, as we saw, I think, last week, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, wrath has come upon them, the Jewish people, to the utmost. Present tense, Paul is saying, right now as he wrote those words, wrath has come upon the people, the Jewish people, to the utmost. In line with the prophecies of Jesus, as we saw as well, Luke 21 coming day of wrath, woe to those who are with child and to those who nurse babes in those days. For there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people 
and they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Not only was there present display of God's wrath, there was a coming great time of wrath upon the Jewish people. Jeremiah 30 calls it the, the time of Jacob's troubles. And there's no wonder that Paul, he knows this. He probably heard Jesus speak those words around the temple in Luke 21. And he's gripped with grief and torment. I mean, what would happen, what would it be like for us if we heard words like that about our, our own kinsmen, our own people? They're under the wrath of God. And greater wrath is going to be poured out and ultimately, eternal separation from Almighty God for all of eternity, lost into hell forever. No wonder Paul had great sorrow and unceasing grief in his heart. But even more than the thought of his own countrymen being under the wrath of God and ultimately eternally lost, was this question that was hanging over the very character of God. God's name was impugned. We thought God made promises. In fact, we thought they were unconditional promises that God made to the Jewish people. What's with God? And God's character was being called into question. So what's Paul going to do about it? He's going to write three chapters smack dab in the middle of Romans to address this. There's going to be two questions that Paul is going to address in these three chapters. The first question is, is God and his word trustworthy? Were all these promises just so much smoke that God was blowing in the Old Testament to the Jewish people, chuckling under his breath all the time saying, <laughs> it'll never come to pass. Is God and his word trustworthy? Had God forgotten his word? Were they just empty, meaningless words? Second question has to do with the Jews, Paul's countrymen. Why are the Jewish people not being saved? Why are the Jews lost? Now, there's going to be two ways that Paul's going to answer those two very important questions. Two ways he's going to answer the questions. The first way he's going to answer it is to focus on the sovereign purposes of God. He'll go right to the very heart, to the very character of a sovereign God. And Romans 9 will deal with that. The second way he's going to deal with it is focus on the responsibility of man, man's own responsibility. And the end of chapter 9 into chapter 10 focuses on this. It's amazing that Paul's going to take these two very different uh, theological concepts, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of men. He's going to bring it together in Romans 9, 10, and 11 to answer these thorny questions about God's character and what about the Jews. On the one hand, God's sovereign election is going to explain why not all Israel is saved. On the other hand, 
Why all Israel is not saved? Because they have refused to put their faith in Christ. So, now Romans 9. I'm going to walk through a little bit tonight and bring up some of these key concepts in Romans chapter 9. Verse 6. He hits it head on when he says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. It is not as though the word of God has no effect. It's anemic. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. Has God's word failed? And Paul says, absolutely not. And here's the reason why. And he says this interesting phrase, for they're not all of Israel who are of Israel. They are not all Israel who are of Israel. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, I think simply this. There was ethnic Israel. There were the, the nation of Israel, uh, redeemed from the house of or Pharaoh's uh, slavery of Egypt, constituted as a nation at Mount Sinai when he gave them the law. He brought them into his covenanted people. The nation of Israel the ethnic people. There was that ethnic nation of Israel. But what Paul is saying here is that not everyone who is in that circle of ethnic Israel is a real Israelite, a spiritual Israelite. There were some that were spiritual Israel, but not everyone. So one thing he says to be an Israelite ethnically, born into that, into our Israeli family, having Israeli blood flowing through you. But that does not a spiritual Israelite make. It's one thing to be an Israelite in the natural sense of the word, another thing to be an Israelite spiritually. And Paul had alluded to this earlier in chapter 2 when he said, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he's a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Shock of all shocks to the Jewish people. Who thought that because we are ethnic Jews, why, <clears throat> we're God's favorite people. We get to go to heaven. We have an in with God. And Paul is saying, <clears throat> no, no, that's not quite right. And he says, let me illustrate it for you. Let me remind you of the ways of God. Verse 7. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. <clears throat> the first story <clears throat> out of the Old Testament is the story of Sarah and Abraham who weren't able to have kids. Sarah was barren. Remember the story? Back in Genesis chapter 16, and so she said, look, Abram, Here's my handmaiden, Hagar. Have 
progeny through her, and so he listened to the voice of his wife, and, and a son was born, Ishmael. And God says, uh-uh, that's, that's not how it works, Abraham. You see, you just did that yourself. You just kind of figured out this whole plan by yourself, and that's not how I operate. No. Sarah shall have a son. At this time, I will come, and Sarah will give birth to a son. The promise of God. And sure enough, Sarah had a baby, age 90. Abraham, 100 years old. Now, the point is that God was in charge. His promises were going to be fulfilled his way, and he didn't need Abram's help to accomplish it. I make the promise, says God, I'm going to bring it to pass. That's how a sovereign God works. My promises are not predictions of what might happen if you help me out. My promises are declarations of what I intend to bring about by my sovereign power. The birth of Isaac is a picture of how every child of God actually spiritually comes into being. A decisive work of a sovereign God. And those children of promise, this illustration of Isaac, he says the children of Abraham, the children of promise, become so because of their faith. Galatians chapter 3 tells us that. All who are of faith, all who put their faith and trust in Jesus are the true children of Abraham. Galatians chapter 3. And so Paul is saying, uh, God's word didn't fail. Abraham, Sarah, you're going to have a son. And sure enough, Isaac was born. The second story, verse 10, and not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For the twins were not yet born and had done anything good or bad, so that God's promise according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of whom calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Esau was born first, they were twins, which makes this story all the more fascinating than the Abraham and Sarah story, is that there was Ishmael, but that was from another woman. But now these twins are born from Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac was born first, the first twin, and so the culture would be that he would get the blessing. But God says, uh-uh, it's not how I planned it. I'm sovereign, and the younger will be the one who will be over the older. The older is going to serve the younger. And God's choice, he said, was not conditioned by any human instrumentality, human activity. It was simply that's what God wanted to do. He says, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. It's a Hebraism, don't stumble over that. I have loved Jacob, I have blessed him, I have not blessed Esau. I give preference to Jacob and not Esau. And so here's the answer to the problem of Jewish unbelief. Israel's unbelief 
was not a failure of the Word of God. It was an outworking of the will of God. Had God's Word failed? Of course not. God was actively, sovereignly involved. He selected Isaac over Ishmael. He selected Jacob over Esau in God's plan for the ages, for the Israelites. God is sovereign, and he'll do what he wants to do. How does that tie in with Israel's unbelief? Israel's unbelief, Paul is saying, is somehow part of a great, a great plan of God, uh, a maybe at times mysterious plan of God, a great plan of God whereby he purposefully and, and intentionally limits his sovereign choices so that not all Israel is Israel. Not every ethnic Jew is going to be a spiritual Jew. Why? Because that is how God has planned it. Exhibit A, Isaac. Exhibit B, Jacob. And before they had done anything good or bad, because God had said it, his word did not fail. Now, notice verse 14, Paul anticipates that people are going to have a problem with this. You might be having a problem with it. Look at verse 14. What shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? And with the, the strongest negative he can come up with, may it never be. Is there some injustice with God going on here? Absolutely not. Well, it sure seems like it. Well, Paul says, let me tell you a couple more stories. Remember Moses? Verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, conclusion, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Verse 17. You've heard of Pharaoh? The scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Conclusion, verse 18, so then, he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not. Because he has mercy on whomever he has mercy. He'll have compassion on whomever he would like to have compassion on. And he will harden whoever he will want to harden. Because he's God. Paul anticipates another objection. Verse 19. You will say to me then, so why does he still find fault? For if what you just said is true, who can resist his will? Look at Paul's answer, verse 20. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump 
one vessel for honorable use, another for common use. What, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath, to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction, and, and, that, and then to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, verse 24, whom he also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. It, it, it's pretty you know, everybody stumbles over Romans chapter 9, but you know, it's pretty straightforward. God is the potter. Now, he's talking about Israel. That's the whole point of Romans 9, 10, 11. The whole subject matter is predominantly, it's Israel. What about the Jews? Has God's word failed? Look at Israel. After all those incredible sermons by Peter, after all the efforts and the, and the missionary journeys going into synagogues and proclaiming Jesus were witnesses of his resurrection, he is both Lord and Messiah, and they turned him down. What in the world was happening? God, Paul is saying, I'll tell you what's happening. God is happening. And if he wants to make his power known and endure with much patience vessels of wrath that he's prepared for destruction, then he has a right to do that. And if he wants to raise up vessels of, of honor for honorable use, then he has the right to do that. Because in the final analysis, who are you, O oh man, to tell God what to do? Because God is sovereign. And so much of the Jewish people were under the wrath of God to the utmost. Why were they under the wrath of God? Because a sovereign God had determined that's exactly what's going to happen. Isn't that unjust? Oh, he can have mercy on who he has mercy. He'll have compassion on who he has compassion. But is there some unrighteousness in God? No, he's the potter. And the nation of Israel is the clay, and he made from one wrath and another a very small amount. As Paul writes this, he said it is a remnant, a small group of Jewish people who came to follow Jesus Christ. You want to understand and know why Paul is saying the vast majority of Jewish people have not followed Jesus as their Messiah? It's not that the word of God has failed. It's not that God misspoke. It's not that God's promises were meaningless. It's that not all of Israel is spiritual Israel, have not come from the promise of Abraham, have not followed him in faith. God's word speaks to this in the Old Testament, verse 25. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. He's talking about the Gentiles now. 
And Isaiah cries out, verse 27, concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is a remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute His word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. It would be a great time to review Isaiah, but we don't have time to do that. But over and over again in the book of Isaiah, there were these warnings to Israel. Coming wrath, coming judgment. The weeping prophet Jeremiah, his lamentations, just cries out, repent, Isaiah the prophet, all the other prophets. And sure enough, the Assyrians came, and then the Babylonians came. But those were only a preview of a judgment that was yet to come. And that's what Jesus was talking about. There's a time of wrath that's coming, of great wrath. And they were just a foretaste of it. Now, as Paul was writing this, they are under the wrath of God to the utmost because the wrath of God is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. Had God's word failed to Israel? No, it is part of his sovereign plan for his chosen people. Israel. But does Paul not offer a second explanation for why Israel has not followed Jesus Messiah? Just as Isaiah foretold verse 29, unless the Lord Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, we would have been like Sodom and would have come and resembled Gomorrah. What shall we say then? that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. Gentiles came and were declared righteous and were justified because they exercised faith. Well, tell me again, Paul, why isn't Israel following after Jesus? Verse 31, but Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Verse 32, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works, and they stumbled over the stumbling stone. That's Jesus, just as it is written, again from Isaiah, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, but he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Why aren't the Jewish people coming to faith? Because they were trying to pursue their righteousness by works. And they're responsible for that choice. Why haven't the Jewish people come to faith? Because God has a sovereign plan for Israel. And not all of Israel is going to be Israel. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility to believe, all brought here in Romans chapter 9. And so we come back to this question. Has God's word failed? And Paul will say, absolutely not. Verse 7, God had said, through Isaac your descendants will be named. They were. Verse 9, God said, at this time I'll come and Sarah will have a son. And she did. Verse 12, God said to Rebekah, the older will serve the younger. And he did. Verse 13, God said that Jacob was loved and Esau was hated, and that truth was born true in history. Verse 15, when God said, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion, 
He does. Verse 17, when God said, for this very purpose I raised up Pharaoh, nothing thwarted that purpose. When in verse 25 God said, I will call those who are not my people, my people, that's exactly what he did. Verse 27, when God said that only a remnant of Israel will be saved, guess what? Only a remnant of Israel was saved. Verse 28, when God said, the Lord will execute his word on earth thoroughly and quickly, he did, and he will. God's word never fails. Why? Because he's sovereign. He's the ruler of all. And whatever God has planned and purposed to accomplish, it will happen. And he invites us to be the, on the experiencing end of that by faith. So two closing applications. I know you want to go a couple more hours, but I think I've caused enough damage tonight. If God's word had failed for Israel, we'd all be in big trouble tonight. Because it would also have failed for us. And however you want to shake out the whole doctrine of election and man's responsibility and free will, however we want to do it, because there's whole sorts of ways to do it, we'll all walk away agreeing with this. God's word never, ever, ever, ever fails. And when God said, all things are going to work together for good to those who love me and are called according to his purpose, guess what? All things work together for good. And when God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, you can trust him. When God says, humble yourselves under my mighty hand and I will exalt you in due time, he will. And when God says, cast all your care upon me because I care for you, he does. And when he says, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And after I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come again. I'm going to receive you unto myself. And guess what? He will. And when God says, I will keep you in perfect peace if your mind is focused on me. That's what he'll do. And when God says, I'm going to direct your paths if you acknowledge me. In all your ways, acknowledge me and I will direct your paths. He will. And when he says, if you confess your sins, I'll be faithful and just and I'll forgive you your sins and I'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He will. <laughs> and if we wait upon him and hope in him, even though our strength is spent, he says, you'll mount up with wings of eagles and you'll run and not get tired and you'll walk and not grow weary. He means that. Because his word never fails. Every promise in the book is mine. Every letter, every line, the old song says. Is there a promise right now that's coming to your mind if you're listening online? Is there a promise of God that all of a sudden, maybe this week in your reading, your Bible reading, anything popping into your mind of something that God has said in his word that you ran across this week or the last couple weeks, something from a song we just sang? 
Are you thinking about it? Is there something that God has said? Maybe something just specifically for you from his word. Grab it. It's true. Because God said it. How comforting in our day and age to know that God's word does not fail. But folks, that means we need to be in it. We need to study to show ourselves approved unto God, handling accurately the word of truth. And as we're studying the word of God and we're meditating on his word and we come across those things that God has said, boy, remember this sermon. Remember Romans 9. Has God's word failed? Are you kidding me? If it did, what kind of a sovereign-less God would he be? Second thing I want to say before we close. It is faith in Jesus Christ that unlocks these promises so that they do become ours. It's faith in him that unlocks it. It's believing his word and then when we do and we experience the reality of him in our life, the last part of verse 33, the last verse of chapter 9, he who believes in him will not be disappointed. He who believes in him will not be put to shame. <laughs> we can trust him. He's saying just... Just trust me, I will not let you down. Believe in me. You will not be disappointed. Don't stumble over the stumbling stone. Don't stumble over Jesus. Run to him. Hold on to him. Love him. Believe him. Because he will never, ever fail us. He will never disappoint it's probably one of the oldest testimonies in the Christian church. I don't know if there's an older one. Second century, a disciple of John the Apostle. John lived well into his 90s. And one of his disciples was a man who became the key leader of the church of Smyrna in Asia Minor, eastern Turkey. His name was Polycarp. As a very young man, he studied under John. And as tradition says, um, after John died, he continued his um, grasping of the scriptures and wrestling with truth and distinguished himself as a, as a dear man of God. Into the second century, as things began to heat up again, not so much with the Jews anymore, but with the Romans and persecution set in. The Roman proconsul knew that they had to squash this movement of Christ followers, and at the center of it was now this 86-year-old bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp. And so they arrested him, and they threatened him with martyrdom, with death. Deny your Christ and we'll set you free. You're an aged man. And some wrote in that time thinking that maybe the proconsul actually felt sorry for this 86-year-old man. 
deny Jesus and bow before the Caesar and say, Caesar is God, and he will be set free. It's recorded many times the words of Polycarp in that trial. Eighty-six years I have served him. Never has he done me wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king, my savior? And the fires were lit as he was tied to the stake as Polycarp died. To enter into the presence of the one who never, ever disappointed him. He's a sovereign God. And whether we agree with particulars of a Romans 9 and a Romans 10 and Romans 11, folks, we're all, I hope, can walk out of here and say, God is in charge. And he loves me. And he gave his son for me. And he'll never disappoint me. Though I may him. His word will never fail. Nor will his love. You see, it really is true. Nothing can separate us from his love to those who are in Christ Jesus, the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we need to just, I think, pause and, and stand or sit quietly in your presence in awe of uh, who you are, in awe of what you've accomplished, but just your sovereign power and majesty. And why you do what you do sometimes, we don't know. Why this beloved people, Israel, as Paul wrote this, were running headlong away from you in defiant anger, hatred of Jesus, and under your wrath, God, somehow in your sovereign plan, this was your plan, this was your purpose and intent. Because you are the potter. Israel was just clay. You spared a remnant, a very small people, but in doing that, as we'll see in these next chapters of Romans 10 and 11, you opened, Father, the message of eternal salvation to every non-Jew out there. Because that was your plan. Your word said that. And your word will never fail. In some strange way, Father, we stand here or sit here tonight, we listen tonight, and we are on the receiving end of a truth that we find hard to grapple with. You harden many Jewish people. 
you bestowed mercy and compassion on a remnant. But that opened up salvation for me. My, my, my. What an incredible God and a sovereign plan. May we, Father, humble ourselves under your mighty hand. Uh, may we um, walk carefully before you and always feel your embrace because nothing separates us from you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.